The time is now. Volume 4, episode 53. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. I always love a special occasion. And just like that, we blinked, and it's another anniversary for this podcast. Our third anniversary. We started this podcast, our very first episode, on February 1st, 2017. And yes, it is February 3rd right now. It's Monday, but... I didn't want to bother you all on the weekend. Figure it's close enough. This is our third anniversary special. And uh, we have been going full steam ahead since February of 2017. Uh, I tell the story all the time. I grew up listening to David Letterman. Uh, always wanted to have a show like David Letterman. And one of the things that I always loved is that every time he did an anniversary special, he brought in the first guest that he ever had on his very first show, Bill Murray. So I wanted to have my own Bill Murray. And on February 1st, 2017, I had my very first guest, Howard Schweitzer, a partner of mine here at Cozen O'Connor. And every anniversary special that we've done since then, uh, Howard has been kind enough to come back on and talk politics and what's going on in Washington and around the country. So I wanted to keep that tradition going. And so for this third anniversary special, here is our inaugural and annual guest, Howard Schweitzer. Hey, Howard. Thanks for being with us. Mike, thanks for having me. So, uh, as those avid listeners of this podcast know full well, this is not your first time here. Um, I started this actual podcast uh, on February 1st, 2017. You were my very first guest. The next year, for my first anniversary, February 2018, you were my guest. Last year, for my second anniversary, February 2019, you were my sole guest. And here we are celebrating my third anniversary of this podcast, and you are back as my guest. Thank you so much much mike mazeltov happy anniversary and i don't know what it says about your podcast that i'm your anniversary guest but i'm i'm happy to be here and thanks for having me well it probably just says that uh, i'm a creature of habit and i love tradition more than anything about you or your quality but um this is what it is at this point um but but i really do appreciate you taking the time as uh, always so uh before we get into some of the nitty-gritty here why don't you remind us a little bit about your practice here at cozen o'connor and the kinds of things you do in the political and public policy space. Sure. Thanks, Mike. I'm the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, in addition to being a partner in the law firm. And Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies is a federal, state, and local government affairs practice. We represent clients here in Washington, D.C., which is where most of my practice is, um, in New York City, New York State, Springfield, Chicago, Richmond, Virginia, Philadelphia, and Harrisburg. So we are federal, state, and local. We're in three of the five largest cities in the country. 
We believe that clients want one-stop shopping and we oversee engagements around the country. My personal um, focus is on Washington, of course. Spent most of my career before coming to Cozen in the federal government. And I it's have too bad a broad nothing's based, going on there. Yeah, right. It's changed. Yeah. A broad-based DC practice. So help clients navigate through the maze of unusual government here in our nation's capital. Good. And we'll get into a little bit of that uh, in this episode. Um, but I also don't want to forget you're also involved in your own regular podcast series about politics. Where do people find it if they want to listen to it? com, and it's called the Beltway Briefing. If you Google Beltway Briefing, it'll come up. And yeah, we've been doing that for a number of years as well. And it's obviously a political season here. The Iowa caucuses are, are tonight. So it's kicking off and we'll be providing our own brand of prognostication throughout the election cycle. Great. So let's get into it uh, a little bit. It seems that uh, every year that you and I talk at this time for the anniversary special, uh, there's always some big news going on in D.C., I guess good or bad, depending on your perspective. Um, so, Howard, what's your take on this whole impeachment process and whether there's anything that employers or business owners can take away from what's going on right now? Well, I think the um, impeachment, look, that cake has been baked from the very beginning. It's all politics all the time and it is it's for show because no one has been under any illusion at any point in time that donald trump is getting thrown out of office Um, but he was impeached by the house and the house democrats obviously felt like it was something that they had to do from a from a political perspective Um, i you know i personally think that the net effect of an impeachment without removal in this case it it emboldens both sides in a way and i think it the net effect will be that people that are casual observers of government and politics will just hate the nation's capital that much more i think it i think it um emboldens the outsiders it emboldens donald trump it emboldens bernie sanders and I think that's one of the reasons Sanders has been surging in the polls is people just don't think business as usual in Washington serves their interests. From an employer-employee perspective, um, I don't think that impeachment necessarily itself necessarily has much of an impact. But um, you know, I, I think, I guess, in, in the sense that it emboldens the extremes on both sides of the aisle, Um, I think we can continue to see more of the same kind of uh, policy making that we've seen coming out of Washington under this administration, regardless of who's who's impact. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. So so putting aside this whole impeachment issue and what might be the distraction element to that, how would you compare the second half of the Trump first term so far to um, what we got from the, uh, the first half? from an employer business perspective? Well, after the midterm elections of the first term, all presidents go into re-election mode. So Trump is firmly and has been firmly in in re-election mode. I think one of the things that this administration has done alongside of that is make sure that um, some of their key policy priorities Um, many of which are in the employer space, things like joint employer rulemakings and the overtime rule, 
uh, scaling back some of what was done by the Obama administration. Um, you know, those things are happening. And so it, it, the first two years was kind of the warm up in terms of issues like that. And now we're seeing them um, make sure that things are solidified. But before the election and also doing things that they think are going to drive um, voters to the polls in, in November. You think, uh, and I know we're putting the card a bit before the horse, but if he gets uh, a second term, uh, do we see more uh, aggressive action on, on some of these fronts that we've been seeing? Definitely, definitely. It's definitely cart before the horse. There's, I think, uh, you know, anybody's guess right now whether he wins a second term. The Democrats are doing their level best to, to give him a second term. Um, <laughs> but I think... Look, regardless of what you think of Trump, whether you you love him or, or you hate him, and I am, you know, I, I've worked for a Republican president. And I'm not, I'm not a Trumpster, um, but he's has definitely done in large measure what he said he was going to do, and everybody like me that was predicting a pivot um, to kind of a more centrist, moderate approach to governing when he was running and in the early days of, of this term um, has, has gotten it wrong. There has been no pivot. There's not going to be a pivot. He is pushing a conservative, um, certainly in the employer-employee context, employer-friendly friendly agenda um, and I, th I think we'll see more of the same. Well, so to be fair to, to those of you who were making predictions early on, um, do you think this was his sort of intent and agenda going into it? Or do you think something happened once he's in office that uh, uh, he decided not to push as many uh, moderate kinds of platforms and went with the more conservative approach? I think he reads the tea leaves better than anybody in either party that's ever held the office. I mean, this guy, again, love him or hate him, he has a unique ability to read the public mood and, and react to it. And I think um, he's doing that every day. I, you know, he, he did a hostile takeover of the Republican Party in 2016. And he has bullied and pushed his way into the role of dominator in chief. He's dominating the party, dominating the party agenda, and dominating the politics of the Republican Party. And I think he realizes that that's his path to continuing to be to be president. It's his path to surviving impeachment. It's his path to. Um, having survived the Mueller inquiry, it's, it, he has doubled down on the Republican Party and the Republican agenda every step of the way. And frankly, he surprised a lot of us. And I don't think that that's going to change. So let's go for a moment uh, to the other side of the aisle. You mentioned that the Iowa caucus uh, is tonight. Uh, there has been lots of buzz uh, about the Democrat race. What's your take on how uh, all things Democrat might impact things? Well, like Trump in 2016, there's 
there's a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party going on right now. He started with 20 plus candidates and, and the field has certainly been whittled, but you've got the Joe Bidens and the Pete Buttigieg and the Mike Bloombergs of the world on the one hand, and you've got Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the other hand, and there is a stark difference between the notion of a Sanders presidency and a Biden presidency. Certainly a Bloomberg presidency. It's not that... Um, it, it, look, they're all progressives. Every single Democrat running is a quote-unquote progressive. And don't believe that it's going to be a centrist agenda if there's a Biden presidency. But there's there's a big difference. There's a big difference stylistically. And there's a big difference, especially as it relates to the role of, of business and the value of the for-profit world and the role of government in a Sanders-Warren presidency versus a, a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, real more to the point. It's a stark, there's a stark difference. And the voters, the Democratic electorate is going to decide which agenda they prefer. Well, so do you think that, uh, and a lot of people have said, wh whichever side of the aisle you're on, whether it's, you know, Republican and conservative or Democrat and liberal and all of these labels get tossed around all the time, do you see things continuing regardless of who's in the White House um, after this next election? Do you see politics continuing to be uh, as extreme as it has been on either side, or do you see us getting anytime soon back to some more moderate kinds of uh, policies and, uh, and initiatives? Well, you raise money on the extremes, unfortunately. So that's where the money gets raised that funds the political process so i think given that it you know that that's always going to be the case as long as we have the current system of campaign finance that that we have and there are lots of efforts underway to and there have been to um, have kind of a, a middle ground in, in politics but but that's where the money gets raised that's what draws eyeballs and clicks from a from an internet perspective and it's very hard in that context there, there are just practical considerations very hard to get away from extremism also the primary process benefits more radical candidates because voters who vote in primaries tend to be more on the extremes than in the middle and as a result it's easier um it's easier to win a primary. It can be easier to win a primary if you're more on the extreme. On the other hand, look at the 2018 midterm elections. You had um, the House flip from Republicans to Democrats. And the candidates that really put it over the edge for the D's were moderate candidates winning in, in moderate districts. Like... Um, you know, candidates in Florida, for example, who um, who were more you know more more moderate, um, 
because that's what was needed to win win the district. So there's there's a reckoning, um, and, and the pendulum swings. I mean, if there were sure. to be a Warren presidency, let's say, you better believe the pres. You better believe that the House will be um, up for grabs in the 2022 election. If if it doesn't, assuming it doesn't flip, which I wouldn't expect it to in, in 2020. So there's like some of this is just the ordinary cycle of events and the pendulum swinging, um, but I think a lot of it adds up to um, you know the fact that money gets raised on the extremes and primary voters are you know are, are, tend to be more extreme voters. So let's go back. We just talked a little bit about the Democrats. Let's go back to the Republicans. This is actually going to be a, a fairly fascinating week, even putting aside uh, the impeachment vote, uh, which is scheduled for Wednesday, uh, although I don't know that there's um, a lot of suspense necessarily in this upcoming vote. Um, but as we were talking about tonight being the Iowa caucus and some of the focus being on the Democrat side, we shift that back tomorrow night uh, to this I guess somewhat awkward state of the union that uh, President Trump will be delivering. Uh, any thoughts on what to expect there, and and you know where the focus may be in his speech tomorrow night? I think it's. Uh, I think he loves it, and for <laughs> him, there's nothing awkward about it. I think this guy loves the fight, and he loves the fact that he gets to go up and. He's going to extol his virtues, as you'd expect. He's going to talk about the things that he's gotten done while the House was busy with their impeachment. Um, things like USMCA, which is the Mexico-Canada NAFTA replacement, were, were getting done. That's kind of his signature legis recent legislative accomplishment, bipartisan. So I would expect him to get up there and talk about USMCA and his other accomplishments and talk about the do-nothing Congress and the fact that they're wasting taxpayer resources on an impeachment. I think it's a moment he will he will relish. So this could be a fairly long speech tomorrow night. Yeah, I, I mean, he'll make his points and I think love the limelight and... and yeah. It's obviously going to be a very divided chamber, um, but I look, he loves theater, and it may be theater of the absurd on some level, but he loves the theater and um, relishes any moment to be the topic of conversation. So we've spent the first 15 minutes now talking about pretty much everything other than some of the substantive issues, and I guess that's um, you know a, a microcosm of, of what the frustration is out there that you know nothing's getting done in D.C. on the substantive issues. So let's spend a few minutes talking about some of this. Um, many of my podcast episodes attempt to address the reality that so many companies are multi-jurisdictional, so they can't just focus for good or for bad on what's happening in D.C. on the federal level as they are heavily impacted by what we're seeing the different states and the local municipalities doing with employment-type issues. Um, so in this second half of the uh, Trump administration term, what seems to be the biggest impact of Trump on state and local politics? Great question, and I think it's a it's reactive. You've gotten 
more extreme on the state and local level, and some of that was already happening. But I think a lot of it is a reaction to Trump. Look at Virginia, for example. Um, the Virginia um, uh, governorship and both chambers are now controlled by Democrats. And that is absolutely, we have a Virginia practice, as I mentioned earlier, and that is absolutely a referendum in part on on Donald Trump. It's He's driving people to the polls to participate in the process, which is a is a good thing on on some level. And but it so now in Virginia, you've got a a much more progressive um, setup than you had and at any time in in recent memory. Um, and that has implications for Mike, for your clients, for my clients, for our clients. It's got it's got implications. And then on the on the more local level, I mean, part of the reason we as a as a business have have doubled down on the cities, for example, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, where we all have where we have um, top tier lobbying talent, is that there's so much going on at that level, so much going on, particularly as it relates to employee employer issues, things like predictive scheduling and um, even joint employer. There's so much happening down at the local level and things do get done. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat legislatively. There's a hyper-progressive bend. In fact, we have recently rolled out a blog that we're calling the Progressive Policy Monitor, progressivepolicymonitor.com, to track these issues at the at the local level all over the country because you see things that emerge in one jurisdiction, like they may start in Chicago or, or rather uh, San Francisco or LA or Seattle and kind of make their way across the country or, or in the reverse, they may start on the East Coast and, these jurisdictions all follow one another, yeah. And there is hyper progressive activity at the local level. That might have been Howard the smoothest plug in the middle of an answer that I've ever <laughs> heard in my life. I mean, that was that was impressive. I love that. I I was happy to give you one for your podcast at the beginning of this, but somehow you got a plug for uh, that know, blog Mike? in the middle of a great answer. That was impressive. Thank you. Well, you know, you got to plug, plug, plug. Otherwise, you know, who knows? Who knows what happens? Absolutely. So, for those who who just went over their heads very quickly, what was that uh, blog again? It's progressivepolicymonitor.com. Yeah, it's becoming so much more important. I say it all the time uh, on this podcast and, and otherwise about how, you know, don't get excited if you're an employer as to what you may perceive to be the pro-employer initiatives and regulations coming out of Washington. You've got to look at these states and the cities. And we used to talk about California being, you know, the People's Republic of California. People joked about it, uh, how it was an outlier. But as you just said, you're seeing city after city, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, other cities around the country as well, coming up with their own uh, initiatives and their own progressive regulations, uh, and they're doing it quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is insane, and the impact on business is stark. I mean, everybody thinks of New York as the 
bastion of capitalism, but if you look at the activity of the New York City Council, it feels more like the bastion of socialism. I mean, it's 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 crazy. It's hyper hyper left, and until there, until businesses start to move away and vote with their bank accounts, it's not going to stop. And I mean, look, some of it is some of it, you know, it, it may be good policy. It may not be good policy. Um, it clearly, you know, it's things like family medical leave. There's a bill in Philadelphia and, and obviously I'm sure you focused on AB5 and sure, um, California. Yeah. California and, uh, that lots of other jurisdictions. Yeah. yeah. And things like that. They happen one place and they're imported to, to lots of other places. And, and in a sense, it gives political cover to all these other places. And even what happens in Washington, you know, the House is passing bill after bill that's pro-labor, pro-employee, and they pass it for political reasons, knowing full well it's not getting anywhere. It's not getting through the Republican Senate, let alone tr over Trump's veto pen. But it gives cover to states and, and local jurisdictions to to do much the same thing, and it kind of all syncs up to a message that the Democratic Party feels is very compelling politically. No question. Um, last year at this time, we were focusing so much on the Federal Department of Labor's impending changes to the rules on overtime exemptions and uh, tax and immigration reform. Do you have any thoughts on reactions to what's been going on in terms of what the Trump administration actually has been doing uh, in the past year? Well, some of it is what we were just talking about, this kind of progressivism and, and looking for other avenues to attack the same issue. Um, and come up the works at, at the state and local level. Um, and I think some of it is 2020 and, you know, let's see if we can beat them at the polls and then we'll roll all this stuff back. So I, I think the reaction is, is multifaceted um, and, and primarily political. Yeah, no question. So um, I want to get some final uh, anniversary episode predictions out of you, and, and maybe I'll put you on the spot for a couple of these. Uh, first, some thoughts on what initiatives we might see coming out of Washington in the next year that employers should keep an eye on? Depends what happens in the election, Mike. It's, That's a lazy answer, Howard. Come yeah, on. I know. I, I expect know. better from you. It's, it's, all, it's all about the election. I mean, I think you'll see Trump solidifying looking to solidify his agenda um and, and his folks you know I, I tell clients don't buy the head fake in some ways like you can't notwithstanding all the time i've spent on your anniversary podcast talking about trump <laughs> and his style and kind of the agenda up at the level of the headlines there's so much that happens in this town below the level of the headlines that people don't see and there are really good people in this administration and the agencies who feel very strongly about the agenda they're carrying out and want to make sure and, and are true believers in kind of the conservative cause and want to see some of that solidified in the run up to the election just in case he doesn't win in in November. And and beyond that, I think it 
it's hurry up and wait for the election. A lot of it is, you know, going to determine. A lot of it's going to be determined by what happens in the House. Do the Republicans keep the Senate? Do we continue to have divided government, or or not? That's the key. If the Democrats run the table in November, forget it. Like some of the um, pro worker protecting to organize act and um, fa- paid family medical leave kind of bills that are coming through the House, those are going to come up in the Senate. If we have divided government, um, whether it's Trump in the White House or a Republican Senate or both, it's kind of business as usual. So I think it, it really does depend. And so because of that, I, I, and I probably know the answer based on what you just say, you just said, but do you see a continuation then of what appears to be a much greater focus on state and local governments making more of an impact on employment regulation than the federal government? Definitely, definitely, definitely. And things like AB5 are moving across the country. Um, I absolutely see continued progressivism down at that level, continued um, pro-employee, um, you know, pro-underserved um, populations kind of kind of legislation, and I think it's I think it's one because they think it's good policy, two because you know all politics is local and state and local is is where you know, people everybody in Washington comes from somewhere. And at the elected level, and you know the, the the next generation of Democratic candidates are going to be these folks coming out of state and local governments, state and local legislatures, and so I think they're kind of it's like the training ground for the future of Washington in a sense. And so you talk about divided government, divided politics. I mean, there's no question. Uh, that so far in this first Trump administration term, it feels like this particular president um, is just piling on in terms of uh, dividing uh, the the country, dividing politics. Um, his, you know, his social media activity probably doesn't help the, that perception. But I also remember people talking about divided country and divided politics you know, in the Obama administration. And, and this isn't necessarily something that we've just been seeing uh, in this first term of the Trump administration. Div- this notion of divided politics uh, and what the impact of that may be on business, uh, that's been going on for some for several administrations. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. I've been in Washington for 25 years, which is kind of unbelievable. And um, it's always been divided. There's always division in Washington. So why is that? Why is that then? If it's not if it's not Democrat, it's not Republican, and again, the personalities of the White House resident, uh, you know, may increase or decrease it a little bit. Why are we where we are in 2020 now? Well, it's rhetoric. It, you know, his rhetoric is divisive. He's a divider, not a uniter, and he's not trying to make the other side like him. He's trying to make sure that every single person that feels strongly about him goes to the polls and and to kind of neutralize folks on the other side. But Mike, it's it's rhetoric, it's tweets, it's it's the tone. It's he's a fighter. And um you know I think I think that's it. But there's there's always been divided government because reasonable people disagree on policy. And that's that's healthy. And by the way, Washington 
um, not getting things done is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people don't necessarily want a more activist federal government. People don't necessarily want to see more out of what coming out of Washington. That's you know, that more government is not necessarily a good thing, no matter what your political stripes are. So, it's reasonable people can differ. I think the difference is right now the rhetoric is 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 not reasonable on either side. I mean, look at the. Look at Bernie Sanders. Like he is—he is a divider, not a uniter at all. He's the Democrats' Trump, and he's surging in the polls, and he's going to win Iowa tonight. And and I believe, and and that's what the polls certainly suggest. And so it's it's both sides. It's what raises money. It's it's an unfortunate sign of the times, and it gives you a soundbite. Great sound, buddy. So let's uh, let's put you on the spot. Then um, you, you started us off making a, a somewhat of a prediction for tonight's Iowa caucus. Who do you see coming out of the Democratic pack uh, for the general election? I think ultimately it'll be Biden because there are more moderate voters than the moderate voters are the largest contingent in the Democratic Party. I think Sanders is going to win Iowa. He's going to win New Hampshire. And the party's going to absolutely flip out. And the whole race is going to change. He's, Biden will then win South Carolina, win Nevada. And it's going to all be about Super Tuesday in California. And I think I think there will people will be, the moderates will be sufficiently exercised by a positive result for Bernie Sanders that they are going to come out to the polls and and lift Biden out of the pack. But um, some of these other moderates are going to have to get out of the race. Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, they have to get out of the race and clear the lane for Biden, who is a good enough candidate. Well, so that leads to the obvious next question. Can or will anyone who's coming out of the Democratic side um, beat President Trump? Yes. I think if... To which one, the can or the will? Um, both. Yeah, I think Biden beats Trump. A moderate beats Trump. A Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren do not beat Trump. I just think it's too... They're too out of step with the the fundamental views of people inside this country, and I just I just don't think that those swing voters, the suburban swing voters that decide elections, are going to go to the polls for a Sanders or a Warren. I think they will for for a Biden, for a moderate, for a, a more moderate candidate, and I think that's what happens. I think Trump is. 100% beatable. There is a lot of um, energy focused on on getting him out of out of office, and I think that's ultimately what happens. That's interesting. But your thought is, it's not going to be another extreme beating this extreme. It's going to be, if anything, a moderate position that will have to beat President Trump. I, I think it's the only way for the Democrats to win, and I think the only. I think it's the only way for the Democrats to beat Trump. And I think, you know, people vote, parties don't vote. But 
gosh, I mean, this guy is absolutely beatable. You got to flip Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And that, you know, 78,000 votes between three states, it's absolutely doable. And, but you got to have the right candidate. People vote and people vote for candidates. And the only thing, the only thing that should matter to the Democratic Party is who is the candidate that is most likely to beat Donald Trump. That is not Bernie Sanders. That is not Elizabeth Warren. The party has to come to its senses and nominate a candidate who can beat Trump and then go crazy in November, get people out to vote. Very interesting. Very interesting, as always, Howard. Um, any last takeaways uh, for employers, business owners? Obviously, uh, we'll be back here uh, in February of 2021 talking to you, and there'll be much uh, on the plate at that point, I suspect. But uh, any last takeaways for uh, the listeners of this podcast, what to be thinking about, what to be looking for, and uh, anything else? You know, I think pay attention down at the local level because that's where things are happening in real time, quickly, that are dramatically impacting business. So be engaged locally, be watching things locally. That's, I think, the most important thing right now. Great. Howard Schweitzer, Cozen O'Connor, and Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the podcast, and uh, happy anniversary to you. We look forward to speaking with you again down the road. Mike, happy anniversary, and thanks for having me as always. Like so many of these other issues, we could spend hours, if not various part one and part two and part threes of this podcast talking about these issues and what's going to happen down the road. It's all fascinating, uh, I think, whichever side of the aisle you find yourself on. Um, I really appreciate Howard coming back on to the podcast. As always, I appreciate all of you listening to the podcast, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.